A happy November 1st to you on this Monday morning. How's your Halloween hangover? And of course, the show doesn't, uh, you know, promote overconsumption of alcohol or anything like that. No, I'm talking about candy. How are you feeling today, friends? Coming up in just a moment, a deep dive, a review of Halloween through the eyes of the team here at Real Talk. But first, a note on this November 1st that this episode is proudly presented by our friends at Bitcoin Well. I'm curious to see who winds up winning their big pumpkin carving contest. They had 21 awesome prizes up for grabs. You can find Bitcoin Well on on Twitter and on Instagram. Their social media, they're all over the place with all kinds of cool stuff because this crypto landscape, there's a lot going on with Bitcoin. People are trying to understand more about it. When I need to sort of basically talk to a real human being to get real human advice on a Bitcoin question, I go for Benny at Bitcoin Well. Find him under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. A whole bunch of you took us up on our offer to, to pass along Halloween photos, which I love. We, uh, we asked you, going, when, when did you ask us that? What do you mean? Halloween was just last night. When did you ask us to do that? Uh-huh. For the several thousand of you that subscribe to our Real Talk Sunday message, you know what I'm talking about. This is the email that goes out every Sunday night, letting you know what's coming up on the show this week. Plus, of course, a look back at some of the highlights of the week that was. And we let you know in that Sunday message, which you can subscribe to, by the way, for free, obviously, on our website. Just go to RyanJesperson.com, scroll to the bottom of the page. That's where you can sign up. We let you know that we'd be showing off some some Halloween photos, including some Halloween pet photos, which are kind of next level. That's coming up a little later on in the show when we present positive reflections with Kubi Energy. It's kind of a Halloween edition, if I'm being honest with you, and positive reflections today. Looking forward to that. The team bright-eyed this morning and so it it leads me to, to sort of speculate or wonder and we didn't talk about this in our production meeting whether or not the two of you were like burning the midnight oil up late halloween on a sunday night is is a bit of a different deal than if it was on the saturday did you have a whole bunch of people hoyle showing up to your front door are you in, are you in one of the neighborhoods that see like you know 300 kids or 800 kids or something wild not so much i um had oh, my you lights, had your lights off, off. Wow, that's okay. I'm. It, it breaks okay. my heart to say that because I, I just, with the, it's still a pandemic. I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I, I couldn't. I sat in my house There's feeling no guilt and shame, as you should. <laughs> Literally, with all the lights, <laughs> just sitting in my guilt and shame. Did any of the kids still come up and ring the doorbell and trick or treat? And even kept, with the totally dark house, I kept waiting for the thud against the window. The egg. The egg, but nothing came. Um, yeah, it, one group of kids did, and it was my nephew. And I was like, "No, no, I don't have candy. I don't have candy." Did you at least give him like a can of, of uh, I don't know? I was I was gonna say tuna, but I don't even know if you have tuna in your house. Did you, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what sort of canned goods you keep. We don't know each other that well. I've not sort I, of examined your pantry, if you know what I mean. You haven't thrown a. That sounded kind of <laughs> that, fucked that up. Sounded wrong. I haven't examined your pantry, if you know what I mean. No, what do you mean? No, I mean literally. I have not been to your house and snooped in your pantry. Are you blushing? I am blushing a little bit. 
I can't. I don't know why I had to throw in the if you know what I mean at the end. That's what took it in this in the different direction. I actually am fostering a couple of puppies right now. Are you really? Yeah, and so they uh, they're really adorable. So I brought the puppies to the door. Amazing, and that kind of like took the took the temperature down from not having candy we were having we were having a, a great conversation with with the boys uh, a neighbor of mine uh, kyle and i we took our boys out together and they did some trick-or-treating a whole bunch of really creative delivery methods people had like um like you know eaves troughing or they, they people had constructed sort of like you know two by four uh or, or two by six kind of rails that went down their banisters to, to do sort of the covid drop a lot of people handing out candy with tongs or you know have like leaving a bowl out kind of a help yourself type situation but but i felt like more houses were were dark than than had been in past years and and that's probably part of it but the kids it's great at their level of understanding six seven years old they're like you know why it would say he'd say yeah that house that house isn't handing out candy and that's okay he says which is great sam how about you guys you and kelly do you see a whole steady stream of traffic you know, since we've moved in, and I think this may be because uh, our house is like across the street from a giant apartment complex that like we've never had a lot of kids at our house. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's just and I think that probably a lot of the families live in there and trick or treat inside the building or something like that. So, I mean, I'd say maybe we had like 20 or so. Yesterday. OK, 20, yeah. 20. Not too bad. Uh, we did. We did the handout with tongs thing. That was sort of, you know, the, the easy little yeah. hack that we did on. Now, it. How, so, many, how many how many pieces of candy or what was your contingency plan if you would have had 150 or 200 kids how many pieces of candy were you stocked with i think what we did is early in the night we handed out very large tongfuls and and if uh, oh. if if fewer if, if more and more kids came the the portions probably kept getting a little bit right. smaller but uh, we never really ran into that so you we have candy to spare so you're the you're the house everybody loves they're you know you're the house that the kids get all wide-eyed and they're like they're throwing like six pieces of candy in the bags yeah something like that and then they got to circle <laughs> back like we would do oh, when you get a little when you get a little bit more halloween experience sometimes you you change the costume up or lose the mask and then circle back oh, it's to a those ghost houses. With a mustache now. Yeah, yes, exactly. What are you dressed up as? I love this. One girl came to our door last night, like like just kind of wearing a power suit. You know, it's like, well, what's your costume? She says, my dad. <laughs> Pretty well done. Love it. So uh, on the live chat, this is great. Uh, got a bunch of people chiming in. Uh, James says he had seven kids at his house with all the candy left. Uh, Brenda says you can keep some of that candy for next year or you can donate it someplace. It depends what the candy is. Uh, you know, if it's like candy corn or these caramels that last for literally, I think some of them before the moon landing are still being sold on store shelves or Tootsie Rolls. Yeah. Tootsie Rolls can certainly last forever, can be used as weapons. And then there's Sam just like gnawing away at a Tootsie Roll this morning. I'm a little Gross. that that sugar hangover, though. That's a real thing. People today, some people are going to be feeling lousy today. Like Chad says his belly is not happy with the candy and beer combo. That he subjected it to last night and he says and by the way my belly's not gonna love the beer and bad food from the oilers game tonight follow up um you know for all of my former colleagues down there i should suggest that by bad food chad you probably just mean like fun food not bad food just fun food i don't work there anymore i don't have to 
pump up the food anymore, do I? Looking forward to it. Going to be at that game tonight, too. The Kraken are in town, and the Edmonton Oilers are officially releasing their their indigenous uh, logo uh, that's been, uh, well, they've been collaborating with it, but a local artist, uh, 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 local artist Lance Cardinal, put it together. Kind of a really neat thing. Anyway, um, I mean, anyway, but I'm just there's a lot to talk about today. We're going to go to COP26 in just a second. This big I don't know how you feel about COP26 real talkers. I'm curious to know. I know that some of you are going to be like, this is great. The world is coming together to talk about how we're going to save the planet. And then some of you are just going to roll your eyes and say, oh, this is great. Like millionaires and billionaires all flying jets, all rolling in, you know, to save the planet. How ironic. And then some of you will say, well, what about Paris? I mean, you know, what's the how is this going to be any different in Scotland? You know, Paris, what did Paris really accomplish? Uh, Tyson Atlio, Caroline Lee and Mark Linus are going to join us. Sarah's put together a roundtable to kick us off this morning. And we'll be talking about COP26 and, and, and what would be. I mean, I like this. Caroline, who's going to join us, put together a blog post where she took a look at five things, like sort of five markers for success. How would you gauge it or how would you define it as a successful environmental summit? That in just a moment. Sapria Devetti will join us. Great friend of the show, a political analyst. You know, she's a member of our editorial board, senior counsel at Enterprise Canada. Uh, you've probably seen her on CBC's Power and Politics as well. We're, we're going to get into a couple of things. Uh, COP26, the Facebook rebrand to Meta and, uh, and and the prime minister's cabinet. I want to ask her what jumped out at her. And then a little bit later on in the show, coming up, I guess, in just under an hour, November is Family Violence Awareness Month. And we're going to take an interesting angle on this. Uh, we're going to talk to a representative from the Alberta SPCA about their pet safekeeping program. It's something you might not think about, but oftentimes pets, I mean, people love pets like family members. I even know that I need to check my language right there because people will say, what do you mean? We like we love them like family members. They are family, family members. members, which I agree with. I agree with, you know, we have two animals that sleep with us in our bed. If they weren't family members, what on earth would I be doing? Oh. I gave up a while ago. This was like a source of kind of consternation, uh, you know, because it was like, you know, dogs can like shed a little bit or they, they've been running outside. They go, run outside to go pee before they go to bed and they come mm -hmm. back in. And then they, they there's like paw prints on the sheets and you're like, man, the bed is supposed to be like the, you know. Uh, sort of like the, 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 the where the, uh, what's, what's the word? It's just kind of like the, uh, where you go to, like, if there's any place in this, in the house, that's like a spa. That's like, ah, you like get into bed and like feel the, you know, that, ah, it's like the safe haven. And then all of a sudden there's animals in the bed and I was like, what's going on? And then I've evolved you know, to the point now where I'm like, come one, come all. You I, want an, I end up being the guy I have like, you know, one square foot on the bed. I'm falling off and like, you know, we've got. You know, two 70 pound dogs just, ah, yes, living their best life on the king mattress. So don't you feel like that's when you're like, it's the it's your retreat. It's the it's your one like safe haven. It's just like that cozy place. And I'm like, that is where you dogs should be, because that's like part of like that's yeah. heaven to me yeah. when I have the more dogs, the merrier. Yeah, I also but I also think, you know, I can I can get on board with that sort of romantic scenario of like the humans in the bed and then the dogs on the dog beds on the floor. It sort of reminds me of the, you know, Twas the Night Before Christmas right, poem. Right. Everybody all snuggled into their appropriate sleeping areas. <laughs> appropriate. <Yeah. laughs> appropriate. Like, who am I? If anybody's known me for more than 10 minutes, they're like, oh, he's honing in now on what's appropriate, is he? Okay. 
Uh, we're going to talk COP26 in uh, in just a second um, and uh, just getting the guests lined up right now. Why don't I remind you? I've got something standing in front of me here. This isn't going to be of help to the folks on the podcast, so maybe I'll just try to describe it. This right here, friends, is an official Friesen Brothers sourdough cinnamon bun. And as you can see, it's got the spooky eyes on it. This is the last one left in the box. I wanted to save one just to show you. This is about to get demolished. Not kidding. Anytime Sam Cape takes me off camera this morning, I'm going to be hammering away at this Friesen Brothers sourdough cinnamon bun. It's just one of the many Jespo recommendations. If you're lucky enough to visit a Friesen Brothers at one of their 16 locations across the province of Alberta. Another one, the braised beef short rib. And I'm going to recommend the Ivan's sausages as well. Those Ivan sausages, it's its a secret Friesen Brothers recipe. Ivan, the real guy, and the sausages are made in his name, in his honor. They do not disappoint. I recommend the classic German Ivan's sausage for a lazy weekend breakfast. Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years has been Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also wanted to remind you that our friends at Park Power are ready to switch you over today when it comes to your internet, electricity, or natural gas rates. Now you can choose, you can compare your rates right now on their website, parkpower.ca. And a reminder, if you go ahead and use the promo code 2021 dash real talk they're going to knock 70 bucks off your first bill that's right commercial or residential at parkpower.ca now the ad read for park power is officially over but i just want to say this real quick i know that there's a whole bunch of you that know i should switch over to park power i know i should do it it's on my to-do list and i i know the promo code and i know i'm going to save 70 bucks but you haven't done it and i'm just going to say just do it today just do it just do it it's like right now, I have on my to-do list today to change the furnace filter. It takes two seconds. Mm -hmm. Why have I taken so long to change the furnace filter? Disgusting. The other one's sitting right there. It's, it's beside the furnace. So I'm going to do that today. And today I want you to switch over to Park Power at parkpower.ca. Can I check in on that tomorrow? Can I be like... Maybe I'll post a... I was going to say, why was I, I going to lie to you and say maybe I'll post a TikTok? That would actually be a good TikTok. I'm on TikTok. I just don't post on TikTok because mm. I just I'm, I'm intimidated. This is one more thing to do. Like maybe that could like be a furnace filter. Well, and everybody's been waiting, right? Like what? I, I, I can hear people across Canada holding their collective breath. When is Jesperson going to do something with his TikTok account? And, uh, and and the fact of the matter is, it, were I to launch with this is me changing a furnace filter as my first ever video, I suspect that people may be left wanting more. So I, but this is the thing also is I get all tied up and twisted up and be like, well, I got to do something major. And then it means that I haven't done anything at all. Hey, maybe we should talk about something major like saving the planet. I don't know. The COP26 conference underway in Scotland. Uh, and uh, we, we've got uh, just a sort of a power panel right now. I'm looking forward to checking in with uh, Tyson Atlio, who's a hereditary chief in line for the House Nation, works uh, for Nature United as the Natural Climate Solutions Director. They're leading uh, nationwide work to advance solutions for reducing greenhouse gas emissions while generating co-benefits. I'm looking forward to talking about this co-benefits for people and nature. Caroline Lee joining us from the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. She's worked as an energy policy analyst at the International Energy Agency and a climate change mitigation analyst. How cool is that? The government of New Brunswick and an energy consultant with Navius Research. So basically, these two are, are like 
literally trying to save planet Earth. Uh, joining us out of the gates this morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks for this. Uh, why don't we start with you, Caroline? I mean, the COP26 conference underway. A lot of people get a little bit cynical about this. Millionaires and billionaires fly in their jets to talk about saving the world. But but you're actually honing in on, on five markers for success. What would define a successful COP26 to you? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right that what happens in these negotiation halls can seem really detached from the day-to-day -day world. And I think you're right. I think what's important about what happens at these international negotiations is the, the broad framework that it creates at a global level that we're all countries together are kind of moving in the same direction. Um, and that's really important. So, you know, for us, five markers our success are, I'll go quickly, one, the big number here for number one is this number of 1.5. So this is the global target that countries have set for themselves um, to limit dangerous, essentially, interference with the climate system. Countries agreed that they would do the best they can to, want to, to meet 1.5. So Glasgow is really an important stop to seeing how well countries are going to make good on their commitments to increase their ambition to meet 1.5. Secondly, there's a big topic around climate finance. Countries, advanced economies had uh, agreed, they had committed to mobilize $100 billion each year by 2020. That deadline has passed. So we're going to see here in Glasgow um, to what extent advanced economies, wealthy nations, are making good on that and that commitment. Third, we need to be seeing much higher prioritization of adaptation. So this is not just reducing emissions, but making sure we're actually resilient to the climate impacts. Fourth, there is um, a real technical set of negotiations and I won't go through them around carbon markets. So seeing resolution around these rules is really important. And then fifth, outside of the formal COP process, you know, the technical negotiations, we were hoping to see some progress on better transparency on climate financial flows. So helping essentially align financial flows to what's needed to achieve a net zero world. I love that you just bang that out for us because it gives us bullet point essentially mile markers to keep an eye on as this unfolds. Tyson, when you take a look at this, do you, do you take a look at a, at a conference at a summit like this with with optimism? Do you think that that a gathering like this can actually impact real change for, for the environment and for people, which I know has been a big part of your focus? Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. Thank you very much. Um, a huge part of, of COP is about um, respecting the fact that we have to work together uh, to reach the goals that we've set and to hold ourselves accountable to those goals. Um, and so there are another big, another big part of the, the conference is to uh, rise to the challenge as, as kind of collective society, um, holding governments uh, accountable to their commitments and understanding that we all have a significant role to play. So absolutely, um, I, it, it gives me a lot of confidence to know um, the colleagues that are attending, the messages that are being brought, um, the speeches that are being made, even in advance and commitments being made in advance, uh, suggest that we're at least paying attention um, carefully uh, to the science uh, and to the expectations of, of the young people around the world to change how we manage our relationship to the natural environment uh, into the long-term future. And so this is a focal point for that conversation um, this week. And it, you know, it fills me with a lot of confidence. 
Caroline, how, how much does it matter or not, you know, that, for example, China's not sending representation, not, not a video statement. I know some people seem to be quite concerned about that. And other people are saying, good, you know, the Chinese aren't flying their big jets. They're like everybody else. There's all these different perspectives on it. But if, if you've got China, you know, not necessarily on board here, Russia not necessarily on board here, how much does that matter? Uh, it does matter. I mean, what I said earlier in my comments is that there is a real kind of symbolic importance to these cops that, you know, global leaders showing up and saying, hey, this really matters to me. It, it matters because I'm giving up my time to be here. Climate change is a priority in my country. So the fact that, you know, the premier of China has decided not to attend, it, it does matter. That being said, what we're seeing domestically in China, but also also in other countries, you know, in India, for example, other developing and emerging economies, they're actually still doing a lot to drive the low carbon transition in their countries. So you kind of put the political stuff aside in material terms. For example, China is the biggest investor in renewable energy. They are single handedly driving renewable, essentially clean energy markets around the world. That's a really big deal. So let's not forget about the fact that, you know, despite the fact that the premier is not there, there's still a lot going on domestically in these countries when you see the the developments or the advancements that china is making on the nuclear front caroline is that something you'd like to see more people talking about you know nuclear is a tricky one because nuclear is um, a non-emitting you know it doesn't emit greenhouse gas emissions and yet nuclear also is is the brunt of a lot of public opposition you know rightly so um it, it, we're, we're at the Climate Institute, I would say, agnostic about the role of nuclear in a net zero future. People can sort of decide, countries can decide what the role of nuclear is. China is really going big on nuclear. A big reason why is that the, they're trying to phase out coal, which is the dirtiest fossil fuel in the world. They're trying to phase it out of their, their electricity system. They have a lot of coal in their electricity system, and nuclear is helping them do that. So... If you if you're a country that decides not to go with nuclear, then that simply means that you have to go farther on other low carbon technologies. Tyson, you've done a ton of work. I'd love for you to take us into this, if you wouldn't mind, uh, you know, working as Nature United's community economic development lead. And I know that you've been doing a bunch of stuff with regards to, to sustainable economic development, uh, including uh, with First Nations communities, a lot of, you know, when you talk to people about getting on board with climate action, for a lot of people, you got to meet them, I think, where they're at with their primary concerns, right? What does this mean for my job, people that might be working in in, in legacy energy, uh, for example, or what does this mean for my community? What might this mean with regards to to government or private investment? Um, How important of an element is that? conversation the the economics and the community development it's absolutely critical um and so if we're looking to make commitments to transition to um to economic models and and to development models that prioritize um ensuring that there's carbon storage sequestration um, reduced emissions and so on we have to acknowledge that um, people's livelihoods are intimately connected to um, natural resource systems, for example, uh, right across uh, our country, of course. 
And they're they're connected in ways that include both traditional, so historic, um, you know, speaking from from my own indigenous cultural perspective, we have that you know deep connection to place. And then there's kind of the contemporary, right? Putting food on the plate, um, and, you know, having um, a meaningful career and job attached to the place that that you live and work. These are really critical factors when um, onboarding or, or communicating ideas about how to become more sustainable in, in our society. And so the work that I've done uh, with Nature United and more broadly with the Nature Conservancy and, and colleagues around the world is we look to ensure that uh, where we're aiming to advance conservation outcomes to, to protect um, natural habitats, to better manage um, e ecosystems and resource systems or to restore systems that, that have been harmed in the past, we're doing so in a way that that acknowledges uh, the need to continue to generate um, economic value um, from interacting with those systems. And so work uh, that I've been fortunate to do with Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous communities, you know, in places where people are deeply connected to natural resources is ensure that access to economic opportunity is kind of a critical factor in the formula for determining what the best conservation approach is in a region. And that's something that, that we take very seriously. Um, we recognize the need to de-risk uh, the adoption of improved practices for people. And you mentioned this uh, just a few seconds ago, that the idea of mobilizing finance is, is critical. Um, and that is one of the key goals uh, of COP this year is to, is to, of course, build on that commitment for 100 billion for climate finance. And, and finance activities and injecting um, funding into the de-risking of adoption of practices is really critical to um, to their success over time. I'm curious for both of your uh, takes on this. I, I wanna ask you basically what's, what's changed or how is the landscape different? How is the conversation different from the last conference or, for, or from summits past um, for a little context. This guy's uh, been a fascinating follow on, on social media, a guy by the name of Mustafa Jarima. I'm not sure if you've seen his tweets. He says, I'm an indigenous activist from North Uganda, says this is my farm. My crops have failed due to stunted growth because of too much rain. We are suffering because of the climate crisis. And yet my community will not be represented at COP26 uh, posts a photo of his crops there. I mean, we see it reiterated, I think, around the world, the impact of climate change. We could talk about wildfire. We could talk about many other factors. That's one context, I think, and maybe how the landscape's changed a little bit. But, but Karen, Caroline, what do you think in other ways? I mean, which could include positives, right? Could include advancements. How is this year's or this edition different? Maybe I'll start with the positive here. You know, in one year's time, I think we've seen a lot of new commitments by countries uh, in terms of increasing their ambition to get as close as we can to that 1.5. So we actually have 70% of global GBT, GBT, <laughs> GDP now, excuse me, um, covered by net zero commitments. So commitments to achieve net zero emissions by mid-century. A short year ago, we did not have that at all. So the the urgency of the climate crisis i think is starting to be translated into country commitments to do more that's good we know that country commitments still fall short of what's needed to to achieve 1.5 so we're still not there at all in terms of our ambition to get to those global goals but we've made a lot of progress 
in addition to the target, so in, in addition to what people actually want to do, the commitments that they've made, we've also made a lot of progress in terms of implementing things on the ground. So, for example, renewable energy, clean energy has increased in deployment significantly around the world. We have started to phase out coal significantly. As I said earlier, the dirtiest fossil fuel in the world. We have less coal uh, than we did um, in our electricity generation systems than a year ago. So things are also changing. Changing um, on the ground, which is positive. What What would you say, uh, Tyson, with regards to changes? Uh, what jumps out at you? Just the fact that you shared that jumps out at me. That those are the changes. We're starting to hear the stories of where people are disproportionately impacted by climate issues. You know, the reach is 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 beyond culture and often beyond politic in terms of how this is going to impact people around the world. So the fact that you shared that and the fact that we're talking about it is where that change is, is happening. It's we're, we're changing the tiers of leadership associated um, with the climate crisis. And so that gentleman that you just posted, um, he's he's officially in this context, a leader and and cha- and, cha- and championing the need for change. And, and here we are kind of channeling that leadership um, and, and chatting about it. And we, are, we hope the same thing is happening at the conference, of course, that that leaders are paying attention to the those that are disproportionately impacted and, you know, developing strategies in order to mitigate that impact. There are leaders that, that belong to countries like ours, like Canada um, and, and other other G20s. That, that have the opportunity to kind of step up and lead the way and, and make inspiring commitments um, to see opportunity and support um, those on the ground to act on those opportunities. So that we know that there are a ton of a tremendous opportunity in natural climate solutions, alternative energies, and so on to mitigate and adapt to climate change, but they just aren't being deployed fast enough to meet the urgency of the change and of the need, of course. And so you have farmers, ranchers, foresters, indigenous governments around the world and other land managers that need access to more support in the form of technical knowledge, uh, regulatory incentive, uh, reduced financial risk to adopt change practices and we that's the that is now the change that needs to happen okay we know it's happening we're seeing this around the world and now we need to actually invest in change today and that's what i'm hoping comes out of the conference of course is that commitment to invest as we're streaming live and and, and as we're essentially recording this uh, podcast the president of the united states is addressing the conference right now and and joe biden's talking about i mean he's calling essentially for a decade of action on climate change and making a a commitment uh, to cut greenhouse gas emissions in the united states he says by over a gigaton by 2030 he's talking about how climate change is impacting people's lives and livelihoods and and i think a lot of people from around the world including people that are listening to this that are watching this are are going to be aware of what's going on in glasgow and and it's certainly on their radar but as is oftentimes the case i think you know g7 un whatever you know people see all the world leaders and they'll see all the rolls royces and the bentleys and the jets and it just doesn't feel like it's relevant in their neighborhood or in their own backyard and oftentimes I'd like to, to wrap up a conversation by essentially asking for a for a call to action, you know, or some homework or, or something to think about, something that that we could do today, something that would reflect, you know, our awareness that each of us can make an impact. Is there something that jumps to mind, Caroline? And feel free to interpret the question as you will. Sure. I mean, maybe I'll mention a couple of things. I think one thing that's really simple 
is that we each have the, the power to vote for political leaders that have the ambition to actually tackle this climate crisis head on. Um, that's really simple. We vote for the people that we think are going to make a difference. And that means being informed about different uh, party platforms and being conscientious in who we support um, using our vote. So that's one simple thing. Secondly, in terms of you know what we do in our individual lives, I, I don't want to kind of give to disproportionate attention to the role of say individual action because I think achieving our net zero goals requires things that are frankly beyond what each of us can individually do. It requires changes at the systemic level. That being said, I think each of us individually can choose to do things that are supportive of climate action. So things like if it's time to retrofit our homes, choosing energy efficient appliances, doing things that make our homes more efficient, especially here in Canada, we use a ton of energy for space heating. Things like, you know, actively choosing to, to use active transportation where we can instead of single occupancy vehicles. Simple things like that, I, I think, have material impacts on the, the success with which we'll, we'll tackle this climate crisis. Absolutely. Tangible stuff. Right. And, and, and then like we alluded to earlier, I know I'm not uh, a friend of mine told me over the weekend, he thinks on the show, I say to state the obvious too much on real talk. I thought, am I stating the obvious too much? But maybe that's what we mean by real talk. Uh, it all comes down to finances, too, doesn't it? You know, maybe pay a little bit more up front, although that might even be irresponsible for me to say, Caroline, because I'm not even sure that that when it comes to energy efficiency, that the pricing on things like appliances may, may be dropping. In other words, you're not paying that high premium for more efficiency these days. But but in a way that, yeah, you can feel good about it. Uh, or better about it anyway. But at the same time, you're going to save some money for a lot of people. Quite frankly, that's what's going to push them to action, right? You're exactly right. You know, for a lot of these energy efficiency investments, it takes a higher upfront cost. But then over the lifetime of, of having that equipment. So one perfect example is an electric vehicle or an, a, an efficient heat pump for your home. It might be more expensive than the current technology that you have, but over time you are going to be saving because it's uh, using less energy over the lifetime. So there are some barriers there, especially for low income households who don't actually have access to that money, right, to buy whatever an EV or an expensive heat pump. And so I think government policies and programs to help, um, you know, reduce that initial burden of the capital cost is really important. But for those of us who can't afford it over a lifetime, a lot of these investments do save money. That's a great point. Tyson, your call to action for Real Talkers. Caroline covered a lot. I uh, appreciate the words that, that she was able to share. Um, maybe shift a bit. So, of course, individuals have the opportunities, usually have the opportunities to vote in, in countries like ours, for example, and, and inspire change at, at the political level. Um, the private sector has a major role to play in, in the climate crisis. Um, and so what we're needing to see in the private sector, for example, is stronger commitments um, to, to mitigation, uh, commitments to to carbon emissions reductions commitments and, and ensuring that along their supply chains, they're enabling actors and partners um, to meet and exceed those commitments by providing access to, to financial resources or, or technical resources. The word I like to use is, is de-risking um, the adoption of practices that allow us to kind of make the changes we need to increase sequestration or reduce emissions. Uh, I have the privilege of working on what we call natural climate solutions, which are actions to protect, manage, or restore natural ecosystems to increase the sequestration of emissions or reduce uh, emissions 
um, from from changes to, to landscape management. And, um, you know, these practices uh, aren't commonplace at this time. And but what Caroline Finnish was saying is that, you know, governments have a role here to play to support early adoption and initial investment and incentivize practice over time. And so we're needing those decision makers to, as I, I mentioned earlier, to make those strategic commitments. We need individuals to, to take advantage of, of opportunities to vote or, or encourage change where they work and, and the corporations and organizations that they work for and with. We need all sectors to be working together. We need our governments to be working closely with, with indigenous leaders around the world, particularly here in our country. Because what we're talking about um, from the systemic change perspective isn't just about kind of day-to-day -day, um, changing of practices. It's about reconnecting to our interdependent relationship with these natural systems that they give us life, more or less, right? Fresh air, um, fresh water, sorry, clean air, uh, and so on. And so it, that reconnection um, across the political spectrum, that reconnection um, between human beings and natural systems is really what we need to be trending towards. And you asked earlier, like, why does this fill me with confidence? Because we're paying attention. We know we need to reconnect in that way. And I think that what people can do uh, day to day in, in their lives, you know, if they can't afford, you know, energy efficiencies, if there isn't the right government programs in place that are allowing for the adoption of those practices, reconnect. You know, reconnect in, in the best way that you can um, to those systems on this planet that, that give us life and, and, and feel that connection. Uh, the two of you coming at this from, you know, different angles, but obviously a lot of common themes and totally appreciate your perspectives. Caroline Lee with the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Uh, you can find them online at climatechoices.ca. Tyson Atlio with Nature United at natureunited.ca. Thanks for giving us a, a part of your Monday morning. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. You bet. Door is always open. Uh, Supriya Duvetti, in just a moment, I I'm going to ask her for her take on on uh, COP26 and the climate. I, I mean, actually, you know, if when Supriya comes on the show, I'm going to ask her about a million things. Um, so enjoy time with her. And that coming up just uh, in one minute, I want to remind you, I mean, this feels like a perfect time. I mean, it, we would roll hot into a Kubi Energy mention. However, we're going to save it because, of course, Kubi on Mondays, you know, is presenting positive reflections. That's coming up when we wrap up our show, Halloween edition. Very cool stuff. But it's also a great time to remind you how proud we are to partner with Athabasca University, Canada's online university. You can check them out right now at AthabascaU.ca. If you're thinking that maybe studying online with AU might be right for you, why not check out the website under programs and courses? You click the link and, and here's where it gets cool. You can let them know in the drop down menu. I'm interested in, let's say, taking graduate online courses. My primary area of interest is the drop down menu. Let's say business. Well, click show me courses and it's going to give you a whole bunch of options that could be right for you. Check this out. Took five seconds, and now I can read in on the courses that might be a good fit, or, or maybe they wouldn't be. Who knows? Hockey operations? Interesting. Wouldn't have thought hockey operations. Athabasca University will surprise. And of course, you need a week off from your studies? No problem. You want to hammer down? Give it 60 hours a week? Yeah, no problem. It's your pace. You determine how your studies are going to roll out via Athabasca University. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Eden Landscaping. More than 20 years, they've been bringing outdoor spaces to life. I checked in with the team. Mike says it's a great time of year to remind people. We're now into November. Can you believe it? Feels like it kind of snuck up on us a little bit. It kind of snuck up a little bit. 
We a were little. we were spoiled though because yeah. we were getting unbelievable weather in our neck of the woods through September and into October, and then we totally lost perspective. And now it makes sense that it's cold. It's November, and it's not even cold. I mean, in our neck of the woods right now, this morning, it's, what is it, like minus four? Come on. It's going to be minus 40 soon. That's when Mike might hang up the hammer, minus 40, I'm sure. But right now, he says, we can still do yard construction. We They're still building these three-season rooms. Maybe you want to put a roof or some sort of a gazebo over your outdoor cook station so you can be barbecuing in January. Give him a shout today, or you can track him down online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And also a big shout out to our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. I know that they've been busy through the month of October, their biggest sale month of the year. Now available, they've got those 2021 Jeep Grand Cherokee L's. This is the first time that the best-selling SUV in North American history has offered a third row of seating. I've been in one. They are stunning. Bang for buck in the SUV market, nothing beats the Jeep Grand Cherokee, and you'll find better selection at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge than you will anywhere else. They can share their inventories. You can find them online via the Sponsors tab on our website, or of course, you can check them out in person. Sapria Devetti, you know her. She's a member of our editorial board, a great friend of the show, senior counsel at Enterprise Canada, visiting researcher at Ryerson University. Of course, you've also probably seen her on Power and Politics, joining us on the heels of what I'm sure was a lively Halloween in her household. Good morning. Yeah. How are you feeling? You have Good a candy. You have a, you have a candy hangover like everybody else. Yeah, definitely. A huge candy hangover, and I had to wake up this morning to tell my two-year-old that. Trick-or-treating is only one day a year. Uh, I'm worried she's going to like escape and end up shaking down my neighbors for more candy uh, as the day goes on. Yeah. She's not having the fact that Halloween's just once a year. But, so you know. this was your uh, this was your first Halloween in the new house, right? Did you did you use it as an opportunity to get to know the neighbors a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It helps when you have uh, an adorable two-year-old trick-or-treating for the first time, right? I mean, like last year, there was sort of this edict not to go out. And I mean, I think there were a couple of houses that had pulled out, put out like bowls of candy. Like we certainly did that. Um, but this year was just, I don't know, it's a completely different vibe, right? Like I think the kids were energized, especially the older kids that, you know, know what trick-or-treating is and know that they'd missed out on it last year were just like raring to go. And it was, uh, it was nice to see everyone in their costumes, but, but yeah, man, candy hangover. They, uh, they don't, they don't cover that in the parenting, uh, in the parenting book. You know what I made myself do? I'm trying to, I'm sort of trying to get, uh, and like when I'm, I'm making my living on camera, like I have for a long time. And so c- certain things I'm like, listen, this COVID and I'm not apologizing for it to my I'm not being too hard on myself, but I'm like, I did put on the COVID 15 like a bunch yeah, of other people here. did. And so I'm like working with back with my trainer now, Graham Duty, who's doing an amazing job, uh, sort of like working with me where I'm at. We've taken a few steps back, Sabria, not going to lie. But another big one for me is just controlling my impulses. Like I can be a very impulsive eater. I love celebrating. And so last night I made myself with all the little candies and like the little chocolate bars and stuff i was like you're gonna put the wrappers right there on the table right in front of you because i find if i can like throw them out one by one and you lose track of how many you're having you know what i mean yeah and so when i got you to need f- that candy graveyard i needed the candy gra- i needed the carnage and it wasn't yeah. even necessarily just for me but also for my my lovely wife who can like look across the room and if there's like 18 wrappers she's gonna be like seriously so this is this is my new form of accountability that I introduced last night. I think it worked out all right. I mean, I'm here with you today without the shakes, which is good. You know, that's a bit of a change for me on a November 1st. 
Did you have it? What are you uh, when you try to make a new impression or, or a big impression in the new neighborhood? Do you go like big chocolate bars or did you, did you have any strategy on that front? No, we probably should have. Uh, but our only strategy was to ensure that we didn't run out of candy. You don't uh. want to be the new house on the block that, you know, can't even be bothered to buy that extra box of candy uh, to ensure that you don't run out. But there was one house that interestingly enough was handing out um, full size chocolate bars on my on my block that I certainly uh, appreciated, even though prior to them handing out full size chocolate bars, the only reason why I took notice of that house is because they had a giant uh, People's Party of Canada sign on their lawn during the election. So, you know. Interesting, interesting times. I saw your tweet about that. I was hoping you'd bring yeah. that up. So, yeah, because that, that's mixed feelings. I mean, they, they support uh, Maxime Bernier and this uh, this deplorable party, this, this sort of scummy little movement. Yet at the same time, big chocolate bars is kind of like, you know, that's what they do, though. It's it's like when the Hells Angels like build playgrounds in neighborhoods. They're like, are we really that bad? You know, yeah, they get you with the full size Kit Kat. You <laughs> know, get you. Yeah. that's where they get you. That's also why we don't release the address of the studio, because I suspect we might be firebombed if this interview makes it out. Hey, uh, I had an amazing conversation, um, you know, about this cop 26 and uh, trying to get some different angles, but like real talk on it, because we know that people are sitting there going, oh, all these millionaires and billionaires and flying in and, the, the you know, the Bentleys are all idling outside the buildings and everybody's flying in their private jets. And all of this is true. This is all true. Uh, but do the, does the end justify the means? And what does this mean for the average Canadian COP26? How do you approach a story like this? Obviously, you're a keen observer of, of news events around the world. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, your point about it maybe not trickling down to your average Canadian or your average person even, I think is 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 poignant because if you're looking at some of these negotiations, you know, they're relatively high level, you know, they have to come upon some sort of agreed statement and it's not easy to do. So it's like, what does that really mean? And I think what Canadians should really take away from this is that we're in a much better place, I suppose, to today, right, in, in 2021, than we were just prior to the uh, the Paris Agreement. So, you know, about six years ago or so. Um, and it, Progress is hard and progress is incremental. Uh, progress is particularly hard when you're talking about in a global context, right? And you need uh, countries and, and actors that haven't always been super diligent and don't really seem all that committed uh, to the issue of climate change to, to really come together. But I just want folks to remember that, I mean, you know, about six years ago, and this was reported by uh, one of Bloomberg's stellar reporters that are you know on the ground um, in Glasgow, but six years ago, we were looking on track to heat the world by over four degrees, right? Now it's closer to three and we're pledging at 2.4. So progress is is kind of, it's there. Uh, it's not as quick or it's not as, as fast or speedy as I think a lot of us would would like, but it's it's still there. And I wanted to ask, I mean, every time you and I talk, we talk politics. And so I, I, I find sort of the political angle on this and, and picking our our prior guests brains. I mean, you know, one of the things is what role should government play on this? And we've got some some interesting comments here, even on our live chat, like, you know, audience members saying that, you know, perhaps certain provinces should send their own representatives to this COP conference. Different provinces have different realities with regards to infrastructure or investment or incentives. Um, you've got the idea around subsidies, you know, making things more affordable for people, whether it's putting in solar panels or moving to a high efficiency furnace or maybe replacing 
replacing the windows in their home, which can be cost prohibitive. What about buying an EV? People that might be looking to to change up their vehicles. Um, The question remains, what role should government play uh, when it comes to, you know, one of these and, and people may call it fear mongering. I don't know, but I think calling climate change an existential crisis is probably a fair assessment. If you look at what the scientists are saying about long term impact to the human race, what role do you think government needs to play here? Feds, I guess, for starters, that's where the commitment's going to come from. And then the provinces reflecting priorities as well. How much of this is up to government? A whole a whole bunch. Right. And I would say the vast majority of it is up to government stepping up to the plate. And the issue of the provinces stepping up is a real interesting one. Uh, You mentioned EVs and you mentioned infrastructure. I will tell you that in an Ontario context, you know, if we had everybody switch over to EVs in a very short time period, there are a lot of good legitimate questions out there as to whether or not our grid would be able to handle it. And if you're talking about a more, uh, even more hyper-local perspective, if you're talking about it in the Toronto perspective, right? I mean, where are folks gonna plug in their EVs? Like actually physically plug them in. Um, and these are all, they seem like really minor issues when you're talking about the planet warming and you know countries being uh, consumed by the sea, essentially with sea level rise. But these are questions that we're gonna have to grapple with. and. I, I don't know if we've grappled with them to the degree that, that we could or we should, because these are all going to be questions that are looming in our near future, even with our own stated commitments um, in this country that we've sort of pledged to do. And I'm very curious to see where that will go. But, you know, to your point about different provinces having different infrastructure uh, priorities, I mean, the electricity grid is a really good example of one where it varies quite drastically from province to province. And we're going to have to figure out a way, um, you know, to to really upgrade some of that in order to match our commitments. Yeah, I had a, a, a interesting conversation with with a pal. Uh, was out visiting him uh, in BC a while ago, and he's got a Tesla, and it's a stunning vehicle, obviously. And we're in the Tesla. Yeah. And I was, I was sort of asking him, you know, I mean, so how does this work? Like, if you want to drive your Tesla from Vancouver to Edmonton to come meet me, how does that work? And and actually, the the technology is is pretty impressive. It it maps out the uh, you know the journey, and then it sort of shows you where the charging stations are and where you need to stop and that type of thing. But but there are some barriers to overcome, and and he says. But also, listen, he says, like, the average EV owner is not looking to drive it across the country. They're, they're you know, yeah. you, you get about 400 kilometers of range on a charge. It can charge, you know, in, in a relatively short period of time ish. Uh, you know, but he said, you know, for him getting in and around Vancouver, making his way to work, going to get groceries, doing the things with the kids. Um, that's not a barrier to entry for him. But the fact of the matter is, for some people, it, it will be. I'm just interested to see the. The evolution of, of, of like, you know, 10 years ago or even five years ago, if you saw an EV, it was quite a thing on the road. Like, wow, look, there it is. Look at one of those. Now they seem to be going more mainstream. But that 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 point you make about the grid is a huge one. I don't even know if it's realistic to say if we want people to move to EVs on mass. Uh, I don't know if people have the purchasing power for that, but you want to have, I suppose, as people are starting to make those decisions, maybe the average family thinks about getting a new vehicle for two years before they get it. Um, These are the conversations, or at least these are the thoughts people need to be having with regards to the viability of it, you know, for the longer term decisions. Yeah, totally. And I mean, to your point about purchasing power, at least in Ontario, once upon a time, we did have a rebate for that sort of thing. Um, It was taken away. And now there are a lot of good criticisms out there as to 
you know, we probably shouldn't be doling out uh, giant rebates to folks that are spending lots of money on Teslas, let's say, but, you know, there are a lot of different EVs out there. Um, you don't always need to get up the super hyper souped up model or whatever it is. But I, I think, you know, just, just going forward, you mentioned range anxiety is one. The other is like, we do have Canadian winters. You're talking about, you know, in your intro, uh, minus 40 degree weather being around the corner. Like that's also a bit of a concern. I, I know that there was a particularly cold winter morning a few years ago here in Toronto when I was still on the air on my old radio show. And I had like, you know, at least half a dozen and messages from people with EVs saying that their car wouldn't start that morning. And so that's another issue that I think we're going to have to overcome, particularly in, in our climate. Um, let me ask you before we run out of time here, I want to ask you about a couple of things you did. You're, you're McGill Law alum, right? No, I'm or McGill undergrad alum. My science degree is from there. Okay. My law degree is from University of Montreal. I did it in French. Oh, Oh, no big deal. No big deal. Uh, there. Yeah. Uh, but you were at a you were at like a Made by McGill event. I was uh, seeing a yeah, sort McGill of alumni event. event. You were talking about social media and, and, and including it, Facebook and tech and, and its move to rebrand as meta. And I'm just curious for your take on this. I've seen a lot of people talking about how it's essentially a brand evolution. I mean, aside from trying to move on from controversy and move away from maybe a brand that's become toxic might be too strong of a word but but the well's been poisoned a little bit with regards to public opinion on facebook and a rebrand can do that um in a way if it's done right but but a lot of people are suggesting this is an indicator from mark zuckerberg's team that they're moving away from just the social media platform or what people understand facebook to be right now uh what are you reading into this rebrand to meta I think it's grasping at straws. I think it's a quick channel change from from their perspective. And I think it speaks to the larger problem that exists at Facebook, which is that they treat a lot of their issues and a lot of the controversy in which they find themselves in as solely being PR problems, as solely being a media outreach problem, right? If only the media and these pesky journalists had a better handle of what was going around inside the company, around you know the management table, then 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 they'd give them a fair shake. Um, but I mean that's not really the case. And I think part of the reason why uh, Facebook has decided to rebrand, aside from you know some of the more recent revelations that have come to light with. Uh, uh, Francis Haugen's, um, you know, interview on 60 Minutes is the fact that their user growth is is rather stagnant amongst, you know, younger folks. And so they're looking to, I guess, find a way to reach out to folks that aren't just boomers and folks that aren't just geriatric millennials. Yeah. You know, like, like, like myself. And so it's, it's, I'll be interested to see as to whether or not that ends up happening. But I mean, right now, everything that Zuckerberg presented with respect to Meta it's all just like, it's a pipe dream, right? None of it is, is, is there. None of it is, is reality. And I think it's really interesting that um, the coverage that they got, uh, a good chunk of it was kind of like, okay, well, let's see where this goes and not more of the, well, what exactly it is that they're doing. I mean, it's kind of reminiscent of like when tobacco companies used to try and explicitly, you know, market to kids. And that will be a very interesting thing to see how how meta kind of evolves and what their really what their real end goal is right because i mean isn't it just to 
consume more of your life so they can sell you more shit and sell your data to more third party yeah. advertisers. Right. And, like, it's, and, and depending know. on what you believe or, or what you, you know, sort of read into some of the company's priorities or the rumors, um, maybe not just even selling you more shit, but also having commerce or trade happen with, uh, their own cryptocurrency. And I mean, it just it sort of gets to the point where you think it's going to be like meta. I can just see yeah. it feels yeah. like the, it feels yeah. like the Truman show where there's gonna be advertising. It's going to be like meta. Uh, I don't know. It feels like the breakfast is going to be named meta. Like everything's <laughs> going to be, you know what I mean? It's just kind of wild. Um, yeah. I, I saw a good point. Maybe Stephen Carter uh, of the strategist podcast, who's now, of course, chief of staff to Calgary's mayor, Jody Gondek. But he, he made a really good point as well when it comes to branding and in particular rebranding. You wait until the storm has rolled through. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. wait until people have forgotten about all the gnarly stuff before you push the new brand out, as, as you, you know, as he said, as the phoenix rising from the ashes to roll out meta amid a lot of this controversy seems to be strange timing. I don't think I'm smarter than Mark Zuckerberg, but it just it, it, it sort of I'm trying to figure it out. I can't quite figure it out. You know, the timing in particular. Well, it's interesting, you know, n neither of us may be smarter than Mark Zuckerberg, but I think we surround ourselves with people that are at least able to say no to us from time to time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that's one of the underpinnings of this entire thing is that I don't know if he has anybody around that table to say, yo, Mark, that's a dumb fucking idea what you're doing right now. Um, and I think he needs more of that. I think, frankly, most people need more of that. But I think particularly in, in you know, his world, uh, I just don't know if there are enough people saying no to him or enough people pointing out, you know, some of the flaws and some of what they've gotten themselves into. Um, and like, you know, some of the stuff that they've gotten themselves into is really terrible. Um, and we talk about it a lot in a North American context, but if you look at it globally, it's much, much worse, right? Um, incitement of violence in, in, in India, uh, incitement of violence in Myanmar. Like these are, these are real problems that are, that exist that Facebook is contributing to. And I, I don't really see much of an end in sight unless regulators like government um, demand better accountability and better transparency from companies like Facebook in terms of how their algorithm works and, you know, the kinds of content that ends up on people's feeds. I have to ask you about uh, the prime minister's new cabinet, the new look cabinet uh, revealed, uh, I guess, a week ago tomorrow. Uh, and I, I wanted to put this picture up as context uh, here uh, from, from your current city of Toronto, Sapria, shot of uh, Stephen Gilbo uh, in wearing silver bracelets in custody with Toronto police. Uh, somewhat of a wry grin on his face after scaling Toronto's CN Tower. He's now Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Uh, the right is calling it a, a climate extremist. Uh, named to the portfolio. Uh, but I, th I think for a lot of people, there are some real questions about that appointment. Uh, your comment on that. And then bigger picture. What do you make of some of the changes? I thought it was interesting. Jim Carr was dropped. The the former uh, federal representative, the prime minister's uh, essentially not his real title, but the special envoy to the prairies is really what he was. Uh, what did you make of some of the names on the list? Yeah. So, I mean, first, that picture of Gilboa makes him look like a nutter, right? Like, I don't know what, like he looks very proud of himself, I suppose, wry smile. Yeah, look, I understand why folks, particularly out West, um, those who are in the oil and gas industry may look at that appointment and kind of see it as a bit of a middle finger um, to themselves, to their livelihoods. But I think we also need to remember that, you know, 
Stephen Gilbo didn't just go in there and is going to tear up the liberal climate plan and come up with the Gilbo climate plan, right? Like he's there to implement the government's agenda and to get it done. And I think we also have to recognize that when the Trudeau government was first, you know, uh, for, when they first came to power in 2015, a lot of shit has happened since then. And I think in terms of our recognition of climate change being uh, intertwined with basically everything we do, particularly when we're talking about infectious or communicable diseases. I think that has uh, reached a bit of a tipping point and we've all sort of come a little bit closer in terms of reaching a, a consensus that something needs to be done. And so where I, so I will just, you know, end by saying this, I understand why folks are a little bit, you know, uh, they feel a little bit of wariness or they're, they're worried, but I, I would just say, you know, let's let's wait and see what the guy does. I, I can't imagine he's going to uh, be flying by the seat of his pants. He has a lot of directives um, coming to him. Uh, and there are also other people around that cabinet table, right, that can uh, mitigate or attenuate any any sort of lone wolfness, I guess, if he wanted to undertake. I, I compared it to, uh, you know, Rachel Notley naming Zipporah Berman as co-chair of her oil sands advisory panel. And it, it, uh, it, uh, I was going to say it irked a few, it, it infuriated, uh, many people in Alberta at the time. And even at that time, I kind of felt, and I still feel it to this, to this day, uh, I can understand the point people are trying to make, you know, Zippor Berman said, you know, the oil has got to stay in the ground and she's an, an anti-pipeline activist and, and certainly a strong voice on the environmental front. I've had several conversations with her, always good conversations. I wouldn't say we see eye to eye on everything, but in my mind, it gave that panel a little bit more legitimacy. If you say our oil sands advisory panel is just eight CEOs of oil sands yeah. companies, I mean, everyone's going to roll their eyes. You have to have those voices represented. And I think you're absolutely right to make the point that the, the strength uh, comes from the decisions made around that cabinet table, but you've got to have some of these perspectives represented or nobody will respect the decisions or the policy that's being formed. Yeah. And I think we also have to recognize that, you know, the Gilboas of the world do also represent a good chunk of the electorate. Right. Sure. And so he's not alone in, in this, in his views and in some of his policy positions. And I think we need to recognize that. Yeah. Don Braid, the columnist uh, here in Alberta for Post Media, said that Gilbo being named to the environment ministry was his greatest anti-oil stunt yet, which I thought was pretty well. I mean, just one thing quickly on Post Media. I mean, we have independent analysis to show just how shitty of a job they've done in terms of reporting and commenting on climate change. So they may want to check on another own house over there. Uh, Sapria Duvetti, real talk all the time. Absolutely <laughs> love it. Thanks for joining us. Have an amazing week. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Yeah, you got it. You can uh, follow Sapria on Twitter at Sapria Duvetti. And of course, uh, Sarah Hoyles, every single morning that we have a show puts out from our official Real Talk RJ Twitter account, the complete list of guests that are going to be joining us. And, and we hope to speak with Mark Linus uh, maybe as early as tomorrow. He's an advisor with UN Champion of Earth. He's in Glasgow, intended to join us uh, this morning, but uh, it just didn't work out. And sometimes that's just the way it goes. I was blown away by those photos that a lot of Canadian journalists that are over there on assignment in Scotland were posting. It looks like even just getting in 
to the COP26 conference was a was a wild endeavor this morning. Check these out. This one uh, posted from uh, David Cochran. He says this is just this is one entry point to the summit. This is the line behind me, says David, an hour after we joined the security line. Imagine what well, I mean, how many people is that without me exaggerating based on what we can see? Is that three or four hundred people right there? Looks like um, a couple other tweets which are were really striking. This one from Glenn McGregor says just massive lineups at delegate and media security screening points for COP26 in Glasgow. He says it's not COVID safe. He says it's not smart security. Poorly done, Scotland, says Glenn McGregor. And Chris Brown from the CBC says we are in the enormous mass of people outside COP26, the summit trying to get in. Will it ever happen? Uh, I don't know about you. I still feel, you know, we're not out of this pandemic. Someone close to me is start, is, has been calling it an endemic in front of everybody. I'm not sure if she's trying to get under their skin or not. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is COVID still a reality. Are you like me? Do you get anxiety when you see like 400 people slammed together? They're all they're wearing masks, but still. And they're outside. But still, it just I don't know if it's going to take years to get over. We, we've developed certain sensitivities or like, what's the word I'm looking at? You have this like internal kind of visceral react. Like I, t- yes. I tense up. When I see big crowd, are you the same way, Sam? I see both of you are nodding your heads. I don't know if that's going to go away for a while. Yeah, I I was at the the Elks game on Friday, and it's like, you know, people are very spaced out on the concourse. They wear their masks until they're in their seats. Like it's actually quite you know easy to move around Commonwealth Stadium. But there's those pinch points. Like at the gates, there's yeah. big lines and there's big crowds and like. Anytime I'm in anything that like, kind of feels like a crowd now, I'm just kind of like gets a little anxious. Although I heard there was lots of room yeah. to spread out and sit wherever you wanted. At it the was Elks game on Friday. Pathetic. Oh. What did they say? Someone said like 14,000 people there or yeah. something like that. Well, Stadium holds 70. Well, that's safer then. I mean, I know. it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I feel anxious when there's big crowds. And then I'm like, it's unfortunate there wasn't a huge crowd. Right. At and the so, football game. See, to me, I'm like, I don't go to restaurants. I don't go anywhere inside. I don't. No. I get my grocery, like I still get my groceries, um, like I order them and then I go pick them up. You know what? I don't. A friend of mine, they've been getting their groceries delivered. Yeah. And they're saying it's like an absolute game. There's going to be a lot of of things that steps that people have taken that they're not going to walk back on, uh, which is, you know, definitely, I think, probably a safe statement. And we're seeing it. Um, Checking in on the live chat. There's a whole bunch of people are still talking candy and Halloween, which is very understandable. Uh, very understandable. And uh, we're going to get to some Halloween photos coming up. Um, I'm not sure exactly when we've got an interview to get to here, which I'm very much looking forward to. This is some serious stuff as we um, contribute. We think it's important to contribute to conversations that are being, you know, that are being held and and hosted across the country as part of Family Violence Awareness Month. Uh, That's November. Of course, today, November 1st, if you're listening to us live, you know that. Uh, who knows? I never know when people are going to hear these interviews. That's the best part about a podcast and a YouTube uh, archive is that you can go back and hear interviews that are relevant to you. That coming up in just a moment. First, uh, let me remind you about, I mean, the partners that we have, our sponsors, we're so grateful for them, including the team at Westworld Computers. They're your Apple experts. If you're looking to get into an Apple Watch, did you? I was talking about the fitness benefit the other day of the Apple Watch and, and how Graham, my trainer, was saying that you know it's something that's valuable from a personal training standpoint because your trainer can just check in and, and see where your heart rate's at and see how hard you're working. <laughs> Sounds like a disadvantage to me as the person being trained, but I digress. Well, there's some really neat stuff happening with regards to the Apple Watch itself. The first fitness service powered 
by Apple Watch. You can work out anytime, anywhere with the world's top trainers. There's there's 11 different workout types, including Pilates and guided meditation only on the Apple Watch. What a great time to pick one up, the Series 7. You can buy it right now at westworld.ca or you can go see them in store. They'll ship across Canada, family and independently owned for more than 40 years. Same deal with Local Waste. They've been family owned for a quarter century. And that business is constantly growing. They've been expanding across Alberta, across Saskatchewan, and and I know big plans for the future. We invite you to keep it local, whether it's a construction site, a temporary bin you're looking for, maybe some big landscaping work, part of your fall cleanup before the snow falls. If you're a business owner and you're the one in charge of getting that bin out back, I would almost go so far as to guarantee you're going to get a better deal when you get in touch with local waste. I've never seen a company so keen on competing for and earning business. Had lunch with them last week. Just a legendary leadership group there. You can find them online at localwaste.ca. Well, November is uh, Family Violence Awareness Month across the country. And we wanted to have a conversation that would be relevant and important, but also maybe touch on an issue that potentially flies under the radar. When we talk about family violence or domestic violence, how much do we talk about pets and and how they play into it? Not just as potential victims of violence, but also as potentially a reason why somebody may stay in a scenario that's certainly not safe for themselves or anybody else. Julie Ivasiak is uh, the coordinator of the Pet Safekeeping Program by the SPCA of Alberta. Uh, Before working with the SPCA, Julia was focused on poverty reduction at a local food bank. A wide breadth of experience here, and I'm grateful that she's agreed to join us this morning. Julia, welcome to the show. Before we go any further, for anybody watching on YouTube, you have to tell us who's sitting on your lap. Who are we seeing here? This is a Casey. He's uh, our one family welfare ambassador dog. He's also my little precious baby who lives with me at home. Um, but he did uh, come through our program. So uh, we like to raise awareness of our programs by telling Casey's story sometimes. So uh, Casey, I'm, I'm trying to pinpoint the breed and I'm not having any. Is this not a Yorkie, is it? No, he's a uh, mostly poodle and Havanese. Oh, love it. And he's got the man bun on the back. I love it. Like very, yeah. on, very on trend. Nicely done. <laughs> this is uh, I know that when, when we talk about family violence, domestic violence and, and, and in particular family violence awareness month, I know a lot of people are, you know, we're going to be focusing in and, and having the important conversations that we have for many years. But pet safekeeping, I think, can fly under the radar. How, how did you get involved in this specific? line of work well i've always uh, had a human focused background um, always wanting to help people and i've always had a deep deep love for animals um, I, honestly i didn't know a job like this existed until i applied for it um, and i'm so grateful and happy that i've been able to do it um, really i always assumed that helping animals would be a hobby or something on the sidelines of the work i did helping people um, and to be able to combine the two is just absolutely fantastic. So what do we I mean, what have you let me ask you first, like a more personal question. What have you learned through the course of doing this work? You know, it's still um, the pet safekeeping, the concept of animals being at risk for violence has been out there for quite a long time. It's still something that people don't talk about and don't quite know about. The awareness just isn't there. 
Um, we say there's a famous line by uh, Phil Arkow, a great researcher in the field of the cruelty connection. Um, if a human is at risk for violence, the animal's at risk for violence. And if an animal's at risk for violence, the human's then at risk for violence. Um, and that's a concept that isn't, people don't know enough about it. So where does the I mean, first of all, I think uh, the number one uh, key point that we need to make is that there's a program available, right? There's a resource available. And I think that the more that people are aware even of that, they can start to dig into it. But but how does it all work? Let's say somebody right now, somebody that really needs to hear about this program is going to be listening to this podcast as they're walking their beloved dog or they're going to watch this on YouTube with their cat in their lap or their bird in the cage, whatever the case may be. And all of a sudden this is resonating very directly with them. Yeah. So we, we actually we offer two programs. We have our pet safekeeping program uh, for victims of family violence. And then we also have a crisis care program that we launched in 2019. Um, the difference is crisis care assists people who are hospitalized, uh, people who are f- experiencing an unexpected crisis situation other than family violence. Uh, so it's not just family violence that we work on. There's a whole range of situations um, that we do assist with. Um, it's as easy as picking up a phone and giving us a call. Um, our phone number is 780-447-3600. Uh, give us a call, send us an email. Um, I will get back to you myself within a couple days um, and we'll go through what resources there are out there that can help you as the person in the situation and the pet. Um, The pet side of things is generally quite simple. We have uh, some amazing, fantastic program partners. Uh, We know when we place a pet with those people, that pet's going to be safe. That pet's going to be confidentially uh, held. No one's going to know where that animal is. So uh, safety is first and foremost. Um, The animals receive the best behavioral care. Uh, They receive veterinary care. So we do standard checkups, spay, neuters. And then we look at if there's any other complex medical needs going on with the animals. Um, And then we focus on the human side as well. We don't want to look after someone's pets and watch that individual fall through the cracks. Uh, So that's where our human service side really comes in. Um, We want to see long-term sustainable outcomes for these clients. And we do that by working with hundreds and hundreds of human service focused agencies across the province. Um, So it's a combination of the human and the animal and getting what's best for everyone in that home and keeping that family together. I'm taking a look at some some statistics here that are, uh, I guess, believable and shocking at the same time, certainly troubling. In particular, uh, women that are experiencing violence, uh, more than one in three, 36 percent of them with animals uh, report that their abuser has threatened or has harmed their pets. Eighty five percent research shows 85 percent of threats against animals were carried out. I mean, it's not just a, a matter of people potentially staying in a dangerous situation because of the pet or because they're not sure what they can do with the pet. They want to find safekeeping. But but it's also the fact that oftentimes these animals are subjected to violence themselves. Yeah. If someone's willing to hurt a human, they're willing to hurt an animal. And especially if they're willing to hurt an animal, they're definitely willing to hurt a human as well. Um, those two things go hand in hand, Um, it is the cruelty connection. Um, Those figures that we pulled were from a study that the Alberta SPCA did back in 2012. 
Um, I would venture that those numbers are and those statistics would be even higher nowadays. Uh, we've seen a great increase in pet ownership over the last uh, decade since that study was released. Uh, we're seeing people more homes that have pets and homes where they have pets, they have additional numbers now. Um, having three or four pets is more and more common these days. Um, so I can only fathom that those those threats to the pets and the people who are affected has increased as well. Just just to be clear here, Julie, are these animals, uh, are they sent out to sort of foster homes, so to speak, or is the Alberta SPCA uh, managing their care? I would imagine sometimes this might be a matter of 72 hours and sometimes maybe this is 72 days. Uh, how, how does it all work? So we, we access uh, private boarding facilities. Okay. Um, a lot of the time, these, these animals are a huge way to control the individuals. So keeping those animals safe, keeping where they are completely confidential is yeah. very, very important. Um, we did look at foster homes, but if someone wants to take a dog for a walk and walks down a public street, that's a risk. And that's a risk that we can't take with these animals. Man, these are the things that, you know, somebody that's not walked a mile in these shoes is not going to be thinking about. Right. I mean, this is it's so important. Uh, this is, I, I can see it even reflected in our audience in our live chat right now. People talking about what an important program this is. I, this next question, I don't quite know how to ask it because I want to ask you what's been the uptake on the program. And if you say it's been amazing, we've helped so many people out. It's just going to reiterate to us that there are so many people experiencing violence, that there are so many people in need right now. But is it catching on? I mean, do you see evidence of it? Yeah, we, we've had uh, incredible growth since the program began. Uh, so the Pet Safekeeping Program began in 2015. Uh, we saw about 200% growth uh, year by year up until 2019. Uh, with COVID in 2020, our numbers were down a little bit, uh, which is not a good thing. Um, we know that people were still affected by family violence and they weren't seeking uh, the resources. So that was kind of sad. Um, this year, we've seen a huge amount of growth actually in our crisis care program. Um, so that's the program that assists when individuals are hospitalized. Uh, this clip right here is Dustin and Miko. Uh, Dustin uh, sought treatment for addiction uh, twice uh, in 2020. Um, and unfortunately, to be able to assist the domestic violence cases, we've had to close our doors for some of the crisis care programming. Um, we've just seen such growth that it is uh, staggering um, and we do not have the resources to manage all the cases that we're uh, getting requests for. Uh, so this year so far, we've had 318 animals in our programs. Um, whereas when we look back to 2019, for the whole year overall, we had 258. Uh, so it's it's exponential growth that we're experiencing. Um, and it's not just the family violence side of things. Uh, we're seeing a lot of effects of the economy um, and the housing crisis that we're dealing with. Um, yeah, it, it, it's tough. It's It's been tough to do our best to keep families together. Um, and have to have to see the amount of need that's out there. It's 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 tough to see sometimes. So people can check out albertaspca.org uh, for details on this program. And, and, and I would imagine that, that a good number of people are going to feel inspired to contribute to this uh, in whichever way they can, including financial donations. What's something you'd like people to take away from this conversation? I always find, you know, when, when it comes to family violence, one of the things that we know is that each one of us 
likely statistically knows someone that's experiencing violence at home, but it's not on our radar because oftentimes people will keep it quiet. They want to preserve the peace as best they can. They want to protect themselves and others, oftentimes children or pets like we're talking about here. What's something through the month of November and around the year as part of Family Violence Awareness Month that, that you'd like to assign us to walk with and consider? You know, I think keeping your eye out for those families in need um, and realizing that pets are a very important part of your family. Mm. Um, They're your biggest confidant in your home. They're there with you when you need them the most. Um, Asking people to give up their pets due to an unexpected crisis, whether it be family violence or the loss of a job or a medical emergency, saying, well, just get rid of that pet is not an acceptable way to manage that situation. Um, These are loved, beloved, bonded members of the family and work needs to be done to be able to protect those relationships, um, not just for the well-being of the human, but the animal as well. Um, At the end of the day, we are an animal welfare organization and taking care of animals and making sure that their best interests are maintained is is a priority of this organization as well. I was just checking out your website, albertaspca.org. I see that your Christmas cash lottery is underway. People can uh, win cash and help animals. There you go, win-win. There's also a link there to report an animal in distress. The Animal Protection Line, 1-800-455-9003. That's the Alberta SPCA. We've been joined by Julie Ivasiak, thanks so much for making time for us and, and to the pupper as well for hanging out very well. Like one of the most thanks well-behaved dogs. Was this was this like 20 minutes on his best behavior? Or is this how chill this dude is all the time? He's usually pretty good. He's a uh, he's a work from home Zoom dog. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he's he's uh, grew up through covid and knows how knows how to zoom. <laughs> well, and, and a, a smart boy understands that the, 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 the more chill that he is, the longer he's able to be in the Zoom call and hang out. Right. With mama. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, smart pub. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course, November, so you bet. Um, we're we're always looking for your insights into how the subject matter that we tackle on the show relates to you or what it makes you think about. And we want to invite you to send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It is November 1st today, uh, which means it is my honor to officially launch the Real Talk email of the month contest so you've seen our diner mugs here the ceramic diner mugs these are just beautiful mugs uh they're they're heavy enough to hold the hottest coffee and also whatever else you like i mean you want to put a milkshake in there you want to put a dairy queen blizzard in there you want to put a sparkling water in there we're not going to judge you maybe a little whiskey in your cup on a friday afternoon bye whatever it is the Real Talk Ceramic Diner Mug has been a hot seller on the merch page on our website, ryanjesperson.com. But now, on the first of every month, or as close to the first of the month on the show, we will be announcing, we'll be, we'll be referencing an email that we received on the show, and we will be awarding a mug shipped to you at no cost, obviously, the winner of our email of the month. And of course, we know that that'll be illustrious company. Now, it might be a trash talk email. It might be an email leading up to an interview with a great question. One of you wants us to to ask a guest. Maybe it's in retrospect following an interview. I'm going to read one here from David in just a moment. Powerful stuff. A full page from David. 
I've had this set aside for a couple of days. He sent it to us on Thursday. I said, this is going to be Monday morning's read. Uh, It's his reconciliation journey. David put a lot of thought into this. So our email of the month, uh, a great contest. We're proud. We want to put as many mugs as possible uh, in front of as many hands as possible across the country and around the world. So you can get to us anytime. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. Before I do that, I mean, we've just spent time talking about how how beloved our pets are for, for pet owners, of course, that tune into Real Talk. You know how proud we are to partner with the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. I want to draw your attention to their blog right now. If you go to their website, granddog.ca, click on blog. You can you can find some amazing resources, including a look into what your dog's poop is telling you. I mean, you got to be out there in the backyard picking it up anyway, unless you've assigned it to the kids. Veteran move. I was talking to a, a little buddy of ours, Levon. His dad, Brent, is a good friend of mine. I, I, and, and I'm cleaning up in the backyard, and I'm talking to Levon, who was over for a campfire. And I said, do you help your dad pick up? He goes, oh, yeah. He says, I even have my own shovel. I looked over to Brent. I went, nice. Start him young. You know, you want your allowance? You got to clean up the backyard. And while you're doing it, while you're doing that task, why not learn more about your dog's digestive system, what help they might need? The blog post is so valuable. I've taken from it. I mean, we've, we've made amendments and adjustments. I've been telling you to what Moses and Monroe are eating based on that. And we've seen marked improvements. We trust Grand Dog Essentials with our two family members, our boxer and our black lab. They deliver to your door in Edmonton, Calgary, and Central Alberta on a weekly basis. And the promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your first time order. Also, a big shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. These are the Dairy Queens at Baseline Road, Westmount, Newcastle, Nemeo, and Palisades. I hope that they had a chance to chill out after Miracle Treat Day. On the Thursday, the 28th, that was unbelievable. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in particular topping the $1 million donated mark to the Stollery Children's Hospital. That's because thousands and thousands of people just like you show up every Miracle Treat Day with all of the proceeds, not the profits. I want to point that out. All of the proceeds going to the Stollery Children's Hospital. A huge shout out to our friends at Dairy Queen. One million dollars donated to the Stollery. Absolutely incredible stuff. What a what an amazing summit that is to hit. So I mentioned this email when David sent it to me. I saw the subject line reconciliation journey and I went, OK, you kind of mentally prepare to hear a story. Then I had shared uh, some personal experiences that I've had, and we've had some amazing conversations, including with Negan Sinclair and, and Jesse Wente, uh, about his new book, Unreconciled. And that's what prompted David to reach out. And he said, you know, during breakfast about a week ago, uh, we were tuned into Real Talk. Love knowing that people are tuning into the show while they have breakfast, getting the day started right. Absolutely love it. What an honor for us, by the way. And David says, uh, we were checking out in particular your conversation with Jesse Wente the author of Unreconciled, very intriguing interviews. You said it struck me as a very realistic outlook on what could happen uh, within Canada in regards to reconciliation. David says when it was finished, the interview, it sparked a moving discussion between Corrine and myself. Uh, First, some background. Uh, We both uh, hail from small town Saskatchewan. Uh, Corrine from Shell Lake and myself from Shellbrook. I wonder if like Shell Lake and Shellbrook have a rivalry. It sort of feels like they might. I'm thinking of Shelbyville. I won't get too off track here. 
He says both communities were surrounded by by reserves, First Nations reserves, and and, and there were always indigenous people in our midst. And Corrine's dad used to hire uh, the locals to help with harvest and had a really good rapport with many of the community members. Uh, their farm was just a few miles from the closest reserve. My dad was the local doctor, and he actually taught himself some Cree so that he could communicate with elders that could not speak English, couldn't otherwise communicate with my dad. And he was very well respected uh, among the First Nations for that very reason. And we both had, of course, indigenous kids in school with us. Uh, some of them lived in town. My family had a, uh, a favorite babysitter uh, who we lovingly referred to as Grandma Fraser. Um from a local First Nation. And, you know, at the same time, having native kids in town, says David, always seemed to cause problems. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized what these underlying issues were. I was white and privileged. And typically, at least based on my observations, these kids were in foster homes and oftentimes neglected. And dad had an elder explain to him one day that there was a fundamental difference in community cultures. When life is very much about property, you know, my house, my yard, my car, my money, my toys, and you contrast it to many of these First Nations, the, the indigenous culture within the community, you have a car, so we have a car. You have a food, we you have food, we have food. You have toys, we have toys. He says, it changed how I looked at a lot of things. But then my conversation with Corrine took a turn. We discussed kids that we remembered going to school with and, and looking back now what their lives were like. And Corrine recounted playing with them in the schoolyard and on hockey teams. And she is the fifth child from a farm family living in hand-me-downs realized that she was still so much better off than what so many of her indigenous friends had. And as farm-ish as her life was, it was still a life of privilege. And she went on to tell me that she now recognizes that Many of her indigenous classmates as family members or in some circumstances descendants of residential school survivors arrived complete with all of the stigma and the other troubles packaged with that. By grade 12, she recalled that she had lost two of her indigenous friends to suicide, one to a horrific altercation. And she wept as she recounted this to me for the first time in our marriage of 35 years. I thought back to my school days, says David, and, and I, too, had indigenous friends that I considered to be close friends. And there were three families in particular that I remember, and all of them were foster families. Uh, one family, all three of them legally blind. Uh, the most I remember them having the most amazingly vivid imaginations. It was remarkable playing with those kids. He says, I don't remember ever treating them with disrespect, but I'm sure in some aspect I probably did. They were just the, quote, Indian kids. David says, I'm so ashamed now. I wish I could track them down for a visit. Apologize if I ever treated them badly. You know, because of my dad's involvement with the First Nations, I had always felt like I had some insight. And maybe I did, but I know it wasn't enough. And as Corrine headed off for the day, still with tears in her eyes, I was suddenly hit with a memory. David says, and it was so horrible that I realized that I had locked it away for nearly 50 years. Across the street from us was a guy by the name of Arnie, an indigenous boy in a foster home. He was our age. We played together all the time. His foster parents were brutal. 
I mean, they would openly, physically punish him. If there was any little thing that set them off, he was made to go to the hedge and, and break off a switch. And they would whip him. They'd, they'd hit him with it right in front of us. I was under 10 years old at the time, says David. So what could I do? Nothing. So I blocked it. And if only I could have done something to help him. Now, says David, now my heart breaks. David says, to be honest, last Friday was a hard morning for us, but not nearly as hard as life for so many of the people we grew up around. David says, I hope that this provides value to real talkers. I wanted to let you know, Jesse Wente's book arrived on our doorstep yesterday. David ordered unreconciled. If you missed our conversation with Jesse, you can look back on it. I highly recommend it. An incredible conversation. And David, thanks for taking the time to share with us firsthand how you're processing what you're hearing or seeing here on the show. To know that a meaningful conversation, an emotional one, but an important one happened because of a guest you saw on the show means the world to us. You can be in touch with us anytime. We value your feedback so many times it drives the editorial direction, at least our awareness of where you're at when it comes to putting this show together. Every Monday, or at least the first day of every one of our broadcast weeks, we take some time to reflect on the positives, the things that make us smile. It's presented by the team at Kubi Energy. Before we get into it, I want to remind you about the amazing work that Kubi's doing. And we, we know that Many of our audience members are joining us from rural areas across the country, including many of you that work in ag. You're the producers. You're the ones feeding the nation. Kubi has been doing a ton of work. I talked to Jake Kubiski, the founding CEO, a while ago. A ton of work on farms. He says more and more farmers and ranchers are realizing that there are so many feasible applications to green energy. To, to getting as close as you can to net zero, at least to getting to a point where you can minimize your carbon footprint and, of course, find efficiencies as well. Who doesn't want to do that? So if when you think of Kubi Renewable Energy, you're just thinking of houses in the big cities with solar panels on the roof, maybe it's time to reimagine or re-envision what's possible. Kubi has teams of installers that are working across BC and Alberta. They're Tesla certified journeymen and apprentices. So you know the job's going to be done right. You can request a free quote right now or ask a few basic questions about how solar might be a good fit for you by visiting them online at kubienergy.ca. As mentioned, it's Monday morning. So that means it's time for another inspiring edition of Positive Reflections, presented by our friends at Kubi Energy. Now, this is a Halloween edition of Positive Reflections, and I'm so excited to get into this. But but before we do, I wanted to tee up a conversation that Terry started last week. Terry took trash talk in a different direction. Quite frankly, it's one that I liked because Terry trash talked me. And maybe Hoyles to a certain degree, but I'll, I'll take the fall for this one. I was driving the conversation on how old's too old for trick-or-treating and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and Terry wrote in, if you missed it, you have to check out Friday's Trash Talk. And she put me in my place. And I started to be a little bit more aware of the age of trick-or-treaters, including last night. 
And I loved this tweet that we saw from Aaron. Aaron says, my five foot nine, 13 year old son with a deep voice will be out trick or treating tonight. She posted this yesterday, says we're both trying to hold on to the last bits of his childhood. Please be kind. She issued the Halloween reminder. Teenagers who seem too old to trick or treat chose childhood over partying. Be happy and hand over the Snickers. I just got chills right now reading that. I kind of felt like shame on me. Who cares? They they chose the magic of Halloween. They chose the childhood over partying. And I love it. I absolutely love it. That tweet just changed my mind. Right? That tweet changed my... Well, Terry's email changed my mind. And then... And you know what it did? It's not that my mind needed to be changed so much as I was like, why do I care? Yeah. Who cares? Like, kids are out not destroying property, not getting hammered, not trying drugs for the first time. I mean, aside from the sugar rush, but they're out just going door to door, participating in the magic and the wonder and dressing up and having fun and being a little bit different. And isn't that great? Yes. And then Erin wrote in and, and she says, you know... I don't care if you're 5 or 85 trick-or-treating. If you love the holiday, if you make an effort to dress up, I will give you candy. She says, if you come to my door without any effort and just ask for candy, though, I will admonish you. I love that. (laughs) She says, but I'll still give you candy. She says, I have a 14-year-old who's very tall. This is the context. 14 years old. She says, he is my youngest, and he was so excited for Halloween. He spent 14 hours making his costume, and he looked absolutely amazing in it. It's this character I'll show. If you're watching on YouTube, I don't know who this is, but it's called Ralsei. You know this character, Ralsei? You can see. So she says, you can't find the costume in stores he spent 14 hours making it she says he was so excited he wasn't able to go to school though he's been feeling a little off he wasn't able to show it to his friends or teachers and so heck we were so proud of him for putting in that effort he says he wanted to be able to show off his outfit that he basically designed himself how cool is that i love those stories i was excited to share a personal family photo if i could our little guy came up with our family costume this year Wyatt Rudy a play on words this guy's six he said daddy I want to be a Zamboni driven by a zombie and I want to call it a Zamboni and Carrie and I both stopped and looked at each other and I thought that's maybe the most brilliant Halloween costume I've ever heard in my entire life kiddo so there's the dogs as pylons that's me left wing well right wing shoots left for the zombies and Carrie the zombie figure skater absolutely love it Hoyles tell us about ranger oh boy this is a feel good it is a feel good so he i dressed him up as superman as super ranger and then uh some folks tweeted at me and said hey you know <laughs> you know that superman's dog or super dog is called crypt uh what is it crypto is it crypto or krypton Cri- yeah crypto and so i was like well that's that's just branding waiting to happen. Um, so I'd already done the photo. So here he is with his beautiful Superman cape on, jumping for a ball. We had a lot of fun catching those shots. He looks a little intense in some of them, but he's a good boy. <laughs> he looks a little intense. <laughs> so does every dog chasing a ball. Still yeah. photos are He's top. very nice. Check this out. So many of you took us up on our invitation to send us photos. We adore this one from Megan. Can I tell the truth? This is my sister. Megan sent us this photo of her beautiful boy. This is Arrow. Arrow, look at that. 
unbelievable Halloween costume little there. Dinosaur. Little dinosaur. Megan rocking her Real Talk water bottle at a girl. Very well done. This was from Angela. Absolutely love this one. Angela shared with us her her Halloween costume. Very spooky, very scary, very well executed, Angela. How about this from this is Lulu? Lulu the dog? What a good sport, Lulu. This is Lulu's... Is that a hot dog stand? Looks to me to be a hot dog stand. Very well done. Real talkers. So very creative. I'd be curious to know how long Lulu stayed in that costume for. Looks like a good sport for all the photos. That's for sure. Brenda sent us a photo of Sherlock. This is Brenda's dog. Sherlock. Very well done. All the doggos. We got more dog photos than we did human photos, which is great. Puts an amazing smile on your face. This one from James... James sent in his own carvings. This is incredible. James is carving like spaghetti squash and pineapples going a little bit off the board, which I love. You know, why conform, right, James? There's no reason to conform. We got this photo from Janice. Absolutely loved this one. Beautiful Halloween. Very well done. We got a couple more photos. This is Halloween in Euclid. 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 You blew it. You cue it. You blew it, Jesperson. You, you did. cue it. Halloween and you cue it. And Sam, I sent you one with just like moments to spare. Did you get the one from Kim? You're such a legend, Sam. Thanks so much. We love this one from Kim who got it into us last minute, which is just amazing. She says, this is my, uh, she says, I don't know what the costume is. Okay. So don't ask me. She says, but the tall kid is my youngest. Uh, she's 14. And Kim said, I wanted to go on the record to join team. Let the teens trick or treat. This might be her last year, so go for it. Kim says we had 100 toddlers to teens show up at the door. We gave out the full-sized bars and pixie sticks, and we had the best time. All manners of gratitude for several hours from every child, says Kim, and it warmed my heart. So whether you're, like Kim said, you know, a toddler to a teen, or like Aaron said, from 5 to 85, Don't let anybody, including the blowhard host of Real Talk, convince you to stifle the magic of any of your favorite holidays. Stand proud. Let your creativity shine. And if it puts a smile on your face, don't you dare apologize for it. Lesson learned over here. Message received, Real Talkers. We love you guys. Coming up on the show tomorrow, hometown hockey host Tara Sloan will join us. Chance she's talking to the NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman, today. She'll give us a full review on the Kyle Beach Chicago Blackhawks story. Plus, authors Dr. Amir Hussein and Omar Mualim, a great friend of the show, will take us into their research on the history of Muslims in North America. What are some of their favorite or most consequential stories flying under the radar? We'll find out. Plus, friendships between different animals in the wild. Not a Disney story. But real life, that to come, plus so much more in this week of Real Talk. Make it a great Monday, friends, and we'll chat with you again tomorrow. Thanks for checking out the show. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Sam Brooks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Tanya Franklin, merchandise operations Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. 
Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.